1: We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about current events on Capitol Hill. Our U.S. Congressman Byron Donalds will be with us. We'll be talking about uh, the uh, election integrity bill and other things that are going on in Capitol Hill. Michael Cannon is the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. He'll be joining us, as well as Naomi Perez. She is the executive director of the Immokalee Foundation. We'll be talking about an exciting new concept and program at the Immaculate Foundation, the Learning Lab, empowering students to uh, succeed. It is January the 14th, and on this day in 1784, the Continental Congress ratified the Treaty of Paris, ending the War for Independence. In a document which was shown as the known as the Second Treaty of Paris, because the Treaty of Paris was also the name of the agreement that ended the Seven Years' War in 1763, Britain officially agreed to recognize the independence of its 13 former colonies as the United States of America. In addition to the treaty settled the boundaries between the United States and what remained of British North America, U.S. fishermen won the rights to fish in the Grand Banks off the Newfoundland coast and in the uh, Gulf of St. Lawrence. Both sides agreed to ensure payment to creditors and other nations of debt incurred during the war and to release all prisoners of war. The United States promised to return land confiscated during the war to the British owners to stop any further confiscation of British property and to honor the property left by the British Army on U.S. shores, including uh, Negroes or slaves. Both uh, countries assumed perpetual rights to access the Mississippi River. Despite the agreement, many of these issues remain points of contention between the two nations in the post-war years. The British did not abandon their western forts as promised and attempts by British merchants to collect outstanding debts from Americans were unsuccessful as American merchants were unable to collect from their customers, many of whom were struggling farmers. In Massachusetts, where by 1786 the courts were clogged with foreclosure proceedings, farmers rose up in a violent protest known as Shays' Rebellion which tested the ability of the new United States to maintain law and order within its boundaries and instigated serious reconsideration of the Articles of Confederation, all of which, of course, led to the new Constitution a few five years later, the uh, United States Constitution in 1789. Well, Joe Biden's uh, first year in office is coming to a close with his worst week yet. By all measures, the Supreme Court has struck down his vaccine or test mandate. His agenda is dead in the water in Congress, and his approval rating has plummeted lower and lower. As uh, the one-year mark for the Biden presidency approaches, the Quinnipiac poll put Biden's approval rating at just 33 percent. I just can't imagine why it's that high, but irrespective. Uh, the lowest of his tenure so far, Biden entered office with a sup- uh, solid 54 percent approval rating, but is, he has consistently slipped in the polls since spring of 2021. Report has hounded White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki to explain where Biden's first year has gone wrong during the uh, briefing Thursday. Frankly, things just seem like they're going pretty poorly right now for the White House, the reporter began. Uh, Build Back Better is being blocked. Voting rights is being blocked. Diplomatic talks with Russia don't seem to have brought us back from the brink of war. Inflation is on a 40-year high. The virus is setting records for infection. So uh, as we kind of hit the one-year period where everything seems to be in pretty rough shape, at what point do you take stock, he asked, and say that things need to change internally? I think it's a pretty good summary by the reporter. Well, Pasaka responded by pointing to a high number of vaccinations under Biden for what an accomplishment that is, as well as the falling unemployment rate before jumping to blame a stagnant Congress for the state of Biden's presidency. When you have a small margin and threshold in the Senate, it's very difficult to get things done. And yet to get legislation passed, she said, the fact that the president, under his leadership, got the American Rescue Plan passed, a bipartisan infrastructure bill with 19 Republicans voting in the Senate, that's a path forward for us, she said. So the sense is things are going well. There's no need to change right now, the reporter pressed. I think uh, that having worked in the White House before, you do hard things in White Houses. You have every challenge laid at your feet, whether it's global or domestically. We could certainly propose legislation to see if people support bunny rabbits and ice cream, but that wouldn't be very rewarding to the American people, she responded. The first major dent in Biden's popularity came thanks to the surging border crisis that began earlier in the year and still rages on. Biden's polling took further hits throughout the summer and fall due to the resurgence of COVID-19, supply chain chaos, rising inflation, as well as his botched withdrawal of the US military from Afghanistan. Biden's falling popularity has been borne out in his press availability. He's held fewer than half as many press conferences in his first year than any five of his first of his most recent predecessors, according to the Associated Press. So let's take a look at a couple of these highlights. Well, The U.S. Supreme Court has blocked the Biden administration vaccine mandate that would have required employees of large companies with more than 100 employees to get the jabs. The mandate, which would have impacted 80 million Americans, required the companies with over 100 employees force workers to get vaccinated or be subject to to weekly testing. The proposed vaccine mandate has drawn criticism from politicians, businesses, and citizens alike, with many even going so far as to file suit. As the Associated Press uh, reported, the conservative majority of the court determined that Biden's administration overstepped its authority, you think? Yeah, Uh, when it sought to mandate vaccines and strict testing regimens on employees of large companies. OSHA has never uh, before imposed such a mandate, nor has Congress wrote the conservative justices in an unsigned opinion. Indeed, although Congress has enacted significant legislative address Legislation addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, it has declined to enact any measure similar to what OSHA has promulgated here. In their dissent, the three liberal judges, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, argued that uh, acting outside of its competence and without legal basis, the court displaces judgment of the uh, government officials given the responsibility to respond to workplace health emergencies. Uh, Well, the question, of course, it's pretty frustrating and I think demonstrates the uh, Peter principle, doesn't it? When, when you see the justices, some of these justices were so misinformed about uh, COVID and everything that's going on in the first place. But irrespective, a good decision. All's well that ends well. Despite nixing the mandate for large companies, the Supreme Court did uphold the Biden administration vaccine requirements for healthcare care workers who receive federal or Medicare or Medicaid funding. As Associated Press reports, the mandate will still allow for medical and religious exemptions. It's kind of strange to me that uh, just because the money comes from the federal government, that uh, therefore uh, the Supreme Court justices feel that they could be uh, held to account for the vaccine mandates. Uh, I don't agree with that. That's kind of strange, and hopefully they'll reverse that in due time. Irrespective, that's the first setback, and then... Senator Kirsten Sinema said Thursday she will not vote to weaken the Senate's 60-vote filibuster threshold, bucking her party's leaders yet again and dealing a major blow to Democrats' election reform effort. Call it reform. It's not reform. The comments, which should match Sinema's long-held stance on the filibuster, are effectively the final nail in the coffin of Democrats' long-shot effort to pass two election bills over unified Senate opposition. And there's her comments are so really wise, in my opinion, I want to just share them with you. Therefore, there's no need for me to restate my longstanding support for the 60 vote threshold to pass legislation. There's no need for me to restate its role in protecting our country from wild reversals of federal policy, she said. This week's harried discussions about Senate rules are but a poor substitute for what I believe could have been and should have been a thoughtful public debate at the time over the past year, she said. Think about that. It's a deliberative body. It should be deliberating and not force-feeding this legislation. She added, Well, what is the legislative filibuster other than a tool that requires new federal policy to be broadly supported by senators representing the broader cross-section of Americans, demands to eliminate these thresholds from whatever party holds the fleeting majority about." amount to a group of people separated on two sides of a canyon, shouting their solution to the other colleagues. The House of Representatives passed a bill Thursday morning, combining both of these original pieces of legislation, the John Lewis Voting Act and the Freedom to Vote Act, but it won't get 60 votes in the Senate, which is a 50-50 split on party lines. Any changes to the filibuster would need all 50 Democrats on board. With Senate a, taking a hard stance on, in favor of the filibuster Thursday, it, disappears, it appears that Democrats will not be able to get there. These bills help treat the symptoms of the d- disease, but they do not fully address the disease itself. And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division affecting our country, she said. Some have given up on the goal of erasing our divisions and uniting Americans. I have not, she said. I worked hard to demonstrate in my public service the value of working with unlikely allies to get results. It's not immediately clear whether Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will try to uh, force a nuclear option vote to carve out an exception to the filibuster for voting rights. Such a vote would likely fail, but would continue to ratchet up pressure on Sinema, Senator uh, Joe Manchin, and other Democrats who uh, less vocally back the filibuster. Today marks the longest time in history that the Senate has been equally divided, Semina said Thursday. The House of Representatives is nearly equally divided, as well, our mandate, it seems evident to me, is to work together and get stuff done for America. Well, it just shows the wisdom of our founding fathers, doesn't it? You have somebody like Joe uh, Biden, who doesn't demonstrate any leadership ability at all. He gets frustrated and angry in Congress. He vows to take the fight to the state legislatures. It's really a mess. And uh, thank God that our founding fathers decided to have separate separation of powers And to reduce the power of uh, really a demagogue like Joe Biden trying to take over power and to mandate uh, his uh, desires. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I'm Bob Hardin, the host of The Bob Hardin Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool, rockin' good time. Higher Senior Resources at the Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way towards keeping seniors connected in the community and with each other. Serving all of Collier County, The Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding resources and services that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers, empowering seniors to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Programs are offered free of charge in a safe, welcoming space and focus on fellowship, enrichment and wellness, continuing education, and meeting basic needs through offerings such as daily hot lunch, health screenings, and counseling services. So whether you're looking for referrals to services or a vibrant place to make friends, enjoy community support, or learn something new, Collier Senior Resources at the Golden Gate Senior Center is your Collier Senior Center. To learn more about programs and services, please visit CollierSeniorResources.org. That's CollierSeniorResources.org. Or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4534. That's 252-3534.
0: back to the Bob Harton show and now here's your host Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. I hope you check it out and find out more. You can download the app by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be visiting with our U.S. congressman, uh, Byron Donalds. Right now we have with us William Yateman, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me on, Bob.
1: Always a pleasure. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
2: You bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of free society at every level of government.
1: Cato.org is the website, William. Thank you for that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the president's, I guess, leadership style, and which or lack thereof. My goodness, we talked just on the show before uh, we got you on air about uh, what happened in the U.S. Senate yesterday. But he was in Georgia, and uh, he, gave, he gave quite a speech that was so unimpressive in terms of leadership. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, he, indeed, just a disastrous speech for President Biden. Um, I'll note at the outset, he he was snubbed by the uh, state—he went to Georgia um, to to talk up his voting, quote-unquote, voting rights bill, um, and he was snubbed by the state's most prominent Democrat, Stacey Abrams, for whom this is her preeminent issue. So that was a terrible start, and the speech itself was beyond the pale. Um, He, he in essence, declared that anyone who disagrees with him on this issue— is, uh, the, uh, in in essence, Bull Connor. I mean, the, this is verbatim, or Jefferson Davis. Mm-hmm. The, you know, this is the stuff he was spouting. Um, uh, even his own party. So Senator Dick Durbin, who, who's in the, the Democrat leadership in the upper chamber, um, even he, after the speech, said that he thought the president went too far. Um, so you know, he was on the one hand snubbed by, by prominent members of his own party on the other hand admonished by prominent members of his own party um, and in no way moved the needle on the issue. Um, And I'll say here, I thought Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had a very effective response. Um, He took umbrage to what uh, his former colleague, President Biden, said in Georgia, um, and he had a very common sense point, which was, you know, the president is using this over-the-top rhetoric um, and, and, and calling this just to be the end all of emergencies um but for the last six months he's been negotiating his social spending bill um so you know it really it belies his words that action must be taken now and that um you know a democracy is in crisis uh given what the president has been doing for the last half year so um all in all you know again from his own party he took a lot of fire and then uh, thought of the GOP Um, via senator mcconnell had a very effective response so just a terrible day terrible terrible speech for the president
1: well and i'll say too I, i recognize that he's very frustrated he's not getting his way on any front and uh, as a consequence, I mean, you expect your president to come out with something inspiring, to come out with something that motivates you for you to get behind him. He's using the exact opposite tactic. He's using rhetoric that uh, is, uh, really turns people off. You know, tell people what to do to start p- calling people names. That is just so atrocious.
2: Couldn't agree more. And, and let's remember how far he strayed from the ideals that he set forth, and what I thought was a fine inauguration speech. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back then on day one, he was all about a uh, conciliatory tone um, and bringing America together. We 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 didn't see any, or we haven't seen really any of that uh, throughout his tenure. And this really punctuated um, his attitude. I'll say this as well. They have only themselves to blame. Um, As we noted on prior calls, they had just failed uh, to get this social spending bill, the the Build Back Better Act, $2 trillion worth of progressive priorities. Um, They just failed to get it through their own caucus in the Senate. And then they immediately pivoted to an even more divisive issue that was going to be even more difficult to get out of their own caucus, so it was going to be even more difficult um, to persuade Senators uh, Manchin and Sinema, um, who, who doubled down on their opposition to what Joe Biden was pitching in the wake of his speech. So, you know, he, he didn't have to take this course. Um, they didn't have to set these grand partisan goals that, frankly, we're doomed to failure. So he's got egg on his face, and, and it, it's only his fault.
1: Yeah, I mean, he actually goes up to Capitol Hill and gets shunned. It was just, uh, it's unbelievable. So, I'd love to get your commentary on this voting rights bill and what's happened with the filibuster. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's going nowhere. I mean, again, I think Senators Manchin and Sinema, um, you Sinema, know, you, as you mentioned, and I believe you spoke up in the prior segment, uh, Biden went to the Hill yesterday to make his case. Even before he made his case, Senema had taken to the Senate floor to announce that she opposed, uh, uh, re- quote unquote, reforming the filibuster. Uh, that is, she torpedoed the president's case even before he made it. Um, that's a tremendous slap in the face and really is a stark indication uh, of where this president sits right now in terms of, uh, to be frank, polling, I mean, which is in the tank. So. Uh, um i you know the the writing is on the wall um with respect to this bill it it, it has no prospects i yeah. mean the cinema the and Mansion have been very clear many times in the last week um that they're not going to budge in the filibuster and that's what it's going to take to pass these quote unquote voting rights bills that would actually federalize elections kind in contravention of the constitution i should add um so it's uh, you know again I think it's a losing effort and uh, I don't to be frank I had no idea why they did it I mean you know again yeah. they pivoted from one losing effort to uh, an, an even more daunting challenge and uh, you know it's it's he's just racking up defeats.
1: You know what concerns me. Uh, thank you for that commentary, William. What concerns me is the president right now has failed on all fronts. And he's angry, and I'm just concerned that where he might pivot at this point and how he might react to all of this, because, uh, you know, he, he's again not using leadership style. He's not being he's not being inspirational in the least. He's uh, he's angry and upset.
2: He's angry and upset, and he's got the powers of the American presidency. So yeah. I concur in whole with what you just said. Um, the sad fact of the matter is that Congress has given away so much of its authority, lawmaking authority, to the presidency that uh, an angry, frustrated Joe Biden has a lot of leverage to impose his will unilaterally. Um, Now, I'll note here, we do have courts of law. Uh, The Supreme Court just this week slapped down uh, that vaccine mandate, so it's not as though presidential power is always a slam dunk. Um, Nonetheless, Uh, that doesn't mean he won't try.
1: Well, he just formed a domestic terrorism unit within the uh, FBI or the Justice Department. It's very concerning what's going on. Indeed. Uh, Quite frankly. Again, William Yeatman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. I encourage our listeners to go to Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. William, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with our U.S. Congressman Byron Donalds. That and more right here in The Bob Harden Show on The Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on The Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot, state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett-Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performance arts center and about the season's exciting productions visit golfshoreplayhouse.org that's golfshoreplayhouse.org we'll see you at the show
0: Now here's your host, Bob
1: Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, not only building a new performing arts center in downtown Naples, but also bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best, and you can get tickets now by visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, I'm going to visit with Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Right now we have with us our United States Congressman Byron Donalds. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
3: Good morning, Bob. How's, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I hope you are as well. I'm doing good. Back Home in Naples. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, I saw your speech uh, on the floor the other day. I, well, maybe it was yesterday about uh, uh, the uh, voting rights bill, and uh, would love for you to share your thoughts on uh, what's transpired here in the last 24 hours and and this voting rights bill.
3: Well, I, I think it's important for everybody to understand that um, the House had passed um, what they call HR 1 for the People's Act, and then they also have passed. Um, H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, earlier this year. Both of those bills basically went nowhere in the Senate because there's not 60 votes in the Senate for those bills. Roughly, there's not 10 Republicans who support those bills. Let me start with the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act because hmm. this is the one that I think probably more people are confused about. Um, that bill, what it would do, it would put into effect something called pre-pre clearance. On every voting jurisdiction in the United States, what pre-clearance is? It requires a local agency if they're going to make adjustments to their voting parameters. Like let's say the Collier County is a Supervisor of Elections, um, if they were going to make adjustments to their to their voting criteria, their their election criteria, they would have to get approval from the Voting Rights Division at the Department of Justice before they could implement the changes. Now, why is this important? Because in the 1965 Voting Rights Act, preclearance was included um, in the act because it was it was clear that there were voting um, jurisdictions that systematically uh, discriminated against Black people to take away their rights to vote. Collier County was actually one of those counties. So Collier County is a preclearance county. Hmm. But in 2013, the Supreme Court reviewed preclearance. And it ruled that in the last two decades, there had been there was no evidence of systematic discrimination against black voters, essentially taking away black people's right to vote. And so, because of that, pre, the pre-clearance portion of the 1965 Voting Rights Act is now null and void in the United States. The other elements of the Voting Rights Act still exist and are still enforceable. So, what the Democrats want to do is they want to take um, pre-clearance, which was the provision to kind of cure. Jim Crow voting issues, um, they want to bring that back and put it in place across every jurisdiction in the United States, regardless if they were a preclearance county before or not, regardless if there's any evidence of discrimination uh, against Black voters. Hmm. And so when they went out there and they say, oh, we support voting rights, everybody needs to understand that the elements of the 1965 Voting Rights Act are still law today, except one, and that's pre-clearance, and that's what the fight is on Capitol Hill. The 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 for the people act. That's the bill where it would make same-day registration legal. It would authorize ballot harvesting. It would actually get rid of voting uh, voter ID laws in 33 states. It would um it would make your no excuse uh, mail-in balloting to happen. It would require of uh, um, public financing of political campaigns on a six-to-one match. For contributions up to two hundred dollars that's that's the that's what they put they put all that stuff in this bill yesterday it, it got put in at the 11th hour the bill was actually a nasa bill so the original bill was for nasa to be able to execute their leasing ability and what nancy pelosi did is she basically opened up that bill dropped in the john lewis voting rights act and hr1 put them all into the same bill and that's what we were debating yesterday
1: ah so interesting now our founding fathers decided that elected officials should determine on a state level uh the uh, p- parameters for voting in other words uh it's it's in the constitution and it requires that our state legislatures mo- to make those decisions the proposed bill the john lewis bill would ap- apparently take it away from uh, our elected officials on a state level and move it to federal officials who are not elected and let them make the final decisions
3: no, that's absolutely right. This Article One, Section 4 of the United States Constitution says that elections are to be governed by state legislatures, not the federal government. You know, I find it interesting, Bob, that you have these elected officials in D.C. who truly think that it's their job to protect voting rights, but it, I'm telling you right now, the states would have never ratified the Constitution if elections were going to be set at the federal level. Yeah. They never would have done it. They never would have approved it. Frankly, a lot of the things that they do in D.C., the, the the signers of the Constitution and the states never would have ratified the Constitution if they truly believed that the federal government would do half the things that it does right now that's what's most obscene about all this stuff but at the end of the day the, the real issue is is that the Democrats have failed on every front and so they're going back to their old the, the, the same old trick they usually do they're talking about voting rights they're talking about how, Republicans want to take us back to to an era, a bygone era, you know, ridiculous stuff, especially when you when you know that the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, those are law because of Republicans, Mm -hmm. not Democrats.
1: Yeah, just so incredible, Byron. So right now, uh, Biden's popularity, I think, reflects uh, the esteem that the public holds for the entire Democrat agenda. Right now, popularity at 33%. I just appreciate your comments on that.
3: Well, his his approval reflects his job performance. I did an interview yesterday, and I kind of joked. Um, I joked, but it's actually quite true. You know, what we're experiencing in the United States is what fans of any pro football team has experienced at some point. Um, you know, probably accepted like the Patriots or, or the Steelers in the last 20 years. Like, you draft a guy to be your quarterback, and then after about three or four games, you realize he can't play. Yeah. And then you realize the backup quarterback can't play, and it's just going to be a long season. Yeah. And America, our starting quarterback, the president of the United States, he can't play, and the and the backup, the vice president, she can't play either. Yeah. And so this is this is where we are, and that's what's demonstrated in their approval numbers. Um, they have failed the American people at every turn. Nothing's actually going well, and so the polling that came out yesterday. For the first time for a Democrat elected, a a Democrat president, had white voters had a higher approval than Hispanic voters. That's not happened for a Democrat president in in the modern era. It's happened to Joe Biden. That's how awful his approval is right now.
1: And uh, that's true with Hispanics, uh, blacks. And I think more and more people are beginning to say, you know, uh, uh, this move, uh, Make America Great Again movement took the Republican Party back to the common man, back to the common people, didn't it? And it—the uh, consequence is that right now, ironically, the whole process has been put on its on its head, turned over in its head. Democrats now represent the uh, political elite and the elite, uh, the rich, and uh, right now, the Republican Party represents the the uh, common man.
3: Yeah, that's that's very very true, and I, it's it's sad to see because even when we debate certain policies. You know, we look across the aisle and we're like, guys, if you do this, the impact the impact it's going to have is not to help the people that you always say you want to help. It actually has a very opposite impact.
1: Yeah, unbelievable. It
3: has a very opposite impact. So, you know, that's where we are in our politics. And it's unfortunate for the people. But, hey, have a good day.
1: Exa- hey, Byron, before I let you go, I do want to. Oh, no, I was
3: dropping my son off. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> I do, I do want to uh, just acknowledge you. Uh, you voted. Uh, to uh, uh, not support uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, election of Joe Biden in the House of Representatives, as I recall, and I yep. I'd like to point out the reason for that, that. When you shared it with me, you basically said, Bob, the reason for that is because uh, state legislatures didn't require their didn't follow their constitutional requirements for uh, for the election in their various states, and yep. uh, it wasn't about it wasn't about Trump. It wasn't about it was about uh, following the constitution
3: yeah no that's exactly right i mean look if you look at wisconsin i'm gonna take wisconsin for example um in dane, dane county wisconsin is is uh madison wisconsin milwaukee county is obviously milwaukee right um in those two counties they ignored the state's rules with respect to absentee ballots and signature verifications they ignored them and they basically said oh well it's covid so we're not going to follow that Meanwhile, every other county in the state of Wisconsin followed the law. So if you have the two most highest populated counties, which, by the way, are also heavy Democrat counties, they ignore state law when the other counties follow the law, and then it comes in front of you and you say, oh, well, there's nothing to see here. Even though a portion of the state didn't follow the law, you can't count those votes. And here's what I'll say about that. In Florida—let me back up. The United States Congress, the Democrats— objected to Florida in 2000 they objected to Florida in 2000 because they basically said that Florida's law was not followed that's what they said on the House floor yeah. in 2004 they objected to Ohio because they were saying oh Ohio's laws in one of the counties wasn't followed that's what the Democrats said yeah. in 2000 and in 2004 so w- Wisconsin's an example I got others I mean you got Pennsylvania Arizona have real issues georgia had real issues and now you're starting to see those there's more investigations going into that but i mean look at the end of the day you have election laws that are set by states people need to just follow the law and not try to circumvent them and go around them yeah and the last argument i'll make to you bob before i go is that the democrats love talking about dark money and politics but what they'll never talk to you about are the third party ballot harvesting operations that are funded by dark money They're not actually in the campaign. They're not running ads in the campaign, but they are literally operating a campaign in the shadows with dark money. And that's got to stop.
1: Absolutely. Byron Donalds, again, our United States congressman. I just, Byron, genuinely appreciate you representing us in Congress and you spending time with our listeners today. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Anytime, Bob. Thanks for having me on.
1: All right. Thank you so much. All right. Coming up, we're going to visit with Michael Cannon. He's the director of health policy studies. Uh, We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482 He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, Classical Academies, and other schools of excellence, serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences, with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue.
0: Now here's your host, Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Naomi Perez, the executive director of the Amakali Foundation. Right now we have with us Michael Cannon. He is the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Great to be here, Bob.
1: Thank you, Michael. So uh, I'd love to get an update on your thoughts on what's happening with, uh, first of all, (laughs) the uh, Supreme Court decisions yesterday with regard to the uh, vaccine mandates, as well as uh, the spread of Omicron. What are your thoughts?
4: So, yeah, a lot to talk about, but the vaccine uh, mandate that the court dealt with, one of them was a mandate and the other one wasn't. The court struck down the mandate and left the other one intact. Yeah. So the the mandate that it struck down was a rule by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that governs workforce regulations, governs workforces, or employment settings. And uh, the Biden administration had said that it could require employers to require vaccination under uh, OSHA's authority to regulate workplaces. And... Uh, THE SUPREME COURT SAID NO, OSHA HAS AUTHORITY TO REGULATE OCCUPATIONAL HAZARDS, NOT GENERAL PUBLIC HEALTH HAZARDS. AND SO THE COURT STRUCK THAT DOWN AS AN OVERREACH BY THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION, EXCEEDING OSHA'S uh, AUTHORITY AS GRANTED BY CONGRESS. THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION ALSO IMPLEMENTED RULES SAYING THAT IF YOU RECEIVE FEDERAL MONEY THROUGH THE MEDICARE PROGRAM OR THE MEDICAID PROGRAM, THEN YOU HAVE TO VACCINATE YOUR WORKERS. Not only does that make more sense because these are people who are gonna be coming into contact with COVID-19 patients, but this is not a mandate because it is a condition that the government imposes on the receipt of funds. And you are free to say no to that money. Hospitals are free not to take Medicare money. You would never know by the way they talk, but they are perfectly free to do that. And so it is not coercive in the way that a mandate from OSHA on all employers will, would have been coercive.
1: Yeah. I must say, uh, Michael, that uh, to me, somehow, some way, our liberties for these workers, for example, are somehow attached to who pays for what. That doesn't make any sense to me at all.
4: It makes perfect sense. I mean, if you didn't impose conditions on federal spending, then there would be a lot more federal spending and your taxes would be a lot higher, Bob. Government would, would grow out of control. Not only are uh, uh not only is it acceptable constitutionally permissible for government to impose conditions on uh, uh on the money it spends it's desirable because think about it the more conditions the government imposed on spending, the fewer people would receive it, the smaller government would be, and the more room there would be for a private voluntary sector that would does a better job of meeting people's
1: needs. Yeah, that's a good point, indeed. So uh, in, in a more general sense, not right now, we're seeing a spread of Omicron. It seems to be uh, uh, apparently less virulent, uh, but also more contagious. Uh, we just here in Collier County just had our hospitals uh, declare that they're not accepting uh, anything but emergency surgery, they're not accepting elective surgery. So uh, they're concerned about hospitals filling up. What are your thoughts?
4: The hospitals are filling up because, even though it is less dangerous, uh, Omicron results in severe disease in fewer people. The fact that it spread so quickly means that 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 smaller percentage is of a much larger number, and so hospitals are reaching capacity or approaching capacity in a lot of different places. And uh, the safest way to protect against Omicron uh, is the same as the safest way to protect against all other variants of the virus that causes COVID-19, which is vaccination. Uh, It does, uh, um, um, the vaccines are less effective against Omicron than against other variants, but they are still highly effective and still the best and safest way to protect ourselves.
1: Well, of course, uh, you and I have a continuing disagreement about that. I mean, the evidence to me demonstrates that, in fact, uh, people are more susceptible to getting uh, Omicron if you've been vaccinated than if you haven't. It appears to be that case. And I don't know about the proof that demonstrates that people are actually safer or have less uh, virulent disease if, in fact, they've been vaccinated. But I would suggest that if uh, it's come to light that now some of these uh, some of these uh, therapeutics have been ha- very effective and, quite frankly, have been very discouraged by uh, Fauci and others. And I'm talking about ivermectin as well as uh, the uh, hydroxychloroquine.
4: So there's an interesting study in the Journal of the American Medical Association suggesting that it ensures are uh, spending about, uh, uh, on an annual basis, about $130 million on ivermectin prescriptions for covid patients. which is troubling because the same journal has published research showing that it is not effective. And if people are using ivermectin as a substitute for other more effective ways of treating COVID or preventing COVID-19, such as vaccines, then that could result in higher healthcare spending for uh, the uh, patients who use ivermectin because uh, they're... Uh, spending would
1: be a lot lower if they were using more effective. Yeah. Uh, no. I, I've seen the uh, doctors treating 5,000 patients successfully, and people not being hospitalized and so forth. There's a lot of uh, a narrative. I don't know if they're, they're double-blind experiments or whatever, but the, there's a lot of evidence that demonstrates that ivermectin Bob, is. Bob, I'm
4: afraid you cut out. I can no longer hear your audio,
1: and I don't know if you can hear mine. I'm so. I can hear you very well, Michael. Can you hear me now? Well, I. I okay. I hear you now. Okay, so I was just uh, what I was suggesting is that uh, that uh, some doctors have said they've been working very successfully with ivermectin. It's been very effective in working with their parents. It's not a double-blind experiment, but in fact, it, I think uh, what we've have here. I talked to one doctor who said that we can't use ivermectin because we'll put it at risk our our. Uh, uh insurance number one and number two we could get it sanctioned by the uh, local medical association so and and and, and in fact m- many pharmacies won't fill the prescription so that's very concerning
4: so uh we hear reports all the time of i took ivermectin and it worked or this physician tried ivermectin on this many patients and got good outcomes but first of all thank god uh, for all of the good outcomes Yeah. But as far as whether that information is reliable, it, it almost always is unreliable, and we should disregard it. And that's because, as you mentioned, they're not double-blind, randomized controlled trials. They don't, uh, which is the gold standard of determining whether uh, medical intervention works or not. Hmm. And uh, not all of the evidence that we're going to get about these treatments meets that high standard. And sometimes you have. To to make decisions based on inferior evidence. But these, uh, but they should be as close to that sort of uh, uh, clinical trial as possible
3: yep.
2: uh,
4: because medicine is so complicated. And the human body is trying to heal itself, heal itself, and does a remarkable job of healing itself all the time, that, that it's very hard to know whether whatever the doctor did was responsible for the good outcome that you see or not responsible for the bad outcome.
1: That That's a good point. So, Michael, I, I, uh, I'm going to have to move on to my next guest, but I just want to really thank you for your contribution here to the show, for coming on the show. And for uh, an opposing point of view, I think it's important that our listeners hear all sides about this and very important issue. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Always happy to do it, Bob.
1: Thank you, Michael. All right, and again, cato.org is the website. Coming up, uh, Naomi Perez, executive director of the Immokalee Foundation. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: back
0: to the Bob Harden show. And now here's your host, Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, I proudly serve on the board. Do a lot of interesting things among them, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative and you can go to the website and find out more. VFGA.org. must have to mix up with uh, uh naomi pereza because uh, she wasn't available to speak however i do want to promote uh what they're doing because it's so interesting i'd like to discuss it with her but i'm going to share it with you they have a program now called career pathways empowering students to succeed of course mockley foundation serves uh the immokalee community in uh which uh, has a lot of farm workers a lot of folks that are uh, disadvantaged, uh, both from an educational standpoint. Well, the Immokalee Foundation is building a new 18-home subdivision in Immokalee that will serve as a hands-on professional career experience for the foundation's students. Career uh, Pathways Learning Lab is a unique project that enables students following the uh, foundation's career pathways curriculum for engineering and construction management and build business management and entrepreneurship to work with industry professionals and learn about land development home construction and uh, marketing and sales really a a fascinating program think about kids going to college and getting an english degree or whatever it might be in many cases they come out of school and they can't find a job or they're not qualified to do things, for example, like uh, building a home, or uh, here they're going to get involved in the details, building 18 homes, uh, playing a role. They're going to end up getting a certification and end up pr- probably getting job offers to do this. Uh, the whole program is uh, uh, analyzed at uh, the uh, working with Immokalee Technical College. At BCB Homes and Collier Enterprises, the Immokalee Foundation developed a high school curriculum to prepare students to enter the engineering and construction management professions. The curriculum focuses on after-school and summer programs that incorpor- incorporate experimental learning and paid internships that can lead to four industry-recognized credentials. That would be Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, National Center for Construction Education and Research, Uh, The building construction technology certificate and the construction supervisor certificate, which is really cool. So, again, these are paid internships. The kids will be able to, unfortunately, some internships, people don't qualify because they just don't have the money to go without an income. Well, this is going to be paid, and it's going to help the kids in Immokalee. So, uh, just really pleased with the program. I'm hopeful that we can get Naomi on the show sometime in the near future, but in the meantime, Uh, Check out uh, the website uh, ImmokaleeFoundation.org, ImmokaleeFoundation.org. Mentioned earlier in the show that according to a new poll from Quinnipiac, Biden now has dropped to a pathetic 33% approval rating. If he goes much lower, even hardcore Democrats are going to start insisting that he resign. Just one third of Americans approve of the job President uh, Joe Biden is doing a new low for the president in a Quinnipiac University poll released Wednesday. The poll showed Biden's approval rating has dipped slightly from November when his approval rating was at 36 percent. It continues a troubling trend for Biden, whose approval rating has steadily declined in each Quinnipiac poll released over the last several months. And as it follows a broader trend of underwater polling numbers for Biden as he grapples with a series of difficult issues to tackle, such as rising prices, a persistent coronavirus pandemic and disagreements with his own party that have stalled progress on his Build Back Better agenda. Uh, Wednesday's tough poll numbers are attributed largely to poor marks from independent voters, 57 percent of whom said they disapproved of Biden's job performance compared to the 25 percent who approved. I just I have difficulty imagining who could possibly approve of the job that he's been doing. But irrespective, I guess there's hardcore Democrats out there that approve of, of the work that he's doing. But albeit 25 percent of the independents uh, feel that way. Biden also saw his approval among Democrats dip from 87 to 75 percent in November. Among registered voters, 35 percent approve of Biden's job performance, while 54 percent disapprove. And uh, finally, I I alluded to this earlier in the show. Biden's Justice Department will increase its surveillance activity on those it deems politically troublesome. The question is really rhetorical. What did Joe Biden's Department of Justice decide to form and why did they decide to form a new domestic terrorism unit? We all know the answer if you're a a neo-Nazi or a Donald Trump supporter or a concerned parent or a COVID realist. The Democrats might just want you to keep a a closer eye on you, you know, just in case you get a bit carried away in your exercise of your First Amendment rights. And what better way to keep an eye on you than to be dedicating and funding a new government unit to the task? They'll claim, of course, that they're on guard against those pesky neo-Nazis and white supremacists who, and by the way, have you ever seen Neo-Nazis or white supremacists, I've seen seeing Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all that, but I've never seen these people that for whom they're trying to prepare themselves, who haunt Joe Biden's fever dreams, but that relative handful of extremists is neither a new threat nor a particularly dangerous one. No threat to you. And so Joe Biden's Justice Department is forming a new domestic terrorism unit to help keep tabs on on a threat that according to the administration enablers at the Washington Post has intensified dramatically in recent years. Here's a report from the Washington Post. Matthew G. Olson, the head of the Justice Department's National Security Division, announced the creation of a unit in his opening remarks before the Senate Judiciary Com- Committee, noting that the number of FBI investigations of suspected domestic violent extremists—those accused of planning or committing crimes in the name of domestic political goals—have more than doubled since the spring of 2020. So, what we had three of them before, now we got six. I mean, this is pretty weak. It's just unbelievable. We mentioned Olson briefly just yesterday. He is one of the two Biden DOJ Democrats or bureaucrats who appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Tuesday and, for all intents, took the fifth. Olson and Jane Sandboard. Jill Sandborn, Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's National Security Branch, played dueling banjos to see which of them could rack up the most. I cannot answer that. Responses to the Republican senators' legitimate questions about the Bureau's role in the events of January 6th. I've decided to establish a domestic terror unit. To augment our existing approach, said Olson, this group of dedicated attorneys will focus on domestic terrorism threat, helping to ensure that these cases are properly handled and effectively coordinated across DOJ and across the country. It's just amazing that this is being done. Uh, this uh, There is no leadership here. We can't say that uh, he didn't warn us. The fact of the matter is that Joe Biden is now just trying to mandate and... Uh, to be, become an oligarch as opposed to a professional and presidential leader. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Monday, uh, we're going to visit with Mark Shulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That leads to a discussion about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Edu- Education. He'll be with us as Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Uh, Shake the money tree and uh, follow the leader. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are, and a great weekend as well. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.